we're going to read the scriptural account, which is uh, pretty much what you just heard. And, uh, and then we'll talk about Moses for a little while together. So if you have your Bibles handy, open them to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, or use your Bible software, your, your uh, uh, Bible gateway, uh, whatever you want to use, just open it up now, and we're going to read uh, a portion of, of Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his, as his wife a Levite woman. Uh, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him in, uh, for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took him uh, for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she drew him out of the water. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So... You can decide which version you like better. They both end the same way. Moses is now a child of Pharaoh's house. Now, as we get to know Moses, we are compelled to stay focused on our primary task because the fact is, is there's so much written about Moses and the people of Israel that I couldn't possibly do justice to it in the short time we have together right now. So what I want to remind you of is that this is a series of sermons for men, about men. Women, you're welcome to listen in, and you might even pick up a few things of use to you. But this series is definitely devoted to understanding what makes a person a man after God's own heart, or a woman after God's own heart. And as we learned last week in the story of Abraham, there's only one person who got mentioned more than uh, Abraham in the New Testament, and that was Moses. So these two men are the most often mentioned Old Testament prophets in the New Testament, and Moses is number one. He is almost universally regarded by peoples of the world who embrace Moses as one of their primary characters in their story as the lawgiver. And certainly he does bring the law at some point in his story. And yet what we're gonna learn about him is that he was a product of his times and his upbringing. And so even though Moses is set apart for a purpose, and that's very clear, even prophesied, because the reason Pharaoh was putting to death the babies was because Pharaoh had heard that the Hebrews were looking for a deliverer to be born about that time. And, uh, well, we don't know a lot about Moses' childhood, but what we do know is he was raised by 
the Pharaoh's daughter in the house of Pharaoh. So let's think of him this way, if you don't mind. He's, he's a immigrant from a third world country, because certainly slaves living in Goshen would be like a third world country. And so Moses is the, is the baby of an immigrant family from a third world country who has been adopted into a wealthy first world family's home. And that's what Moses is. So we can make a lot of assumptions then. He got the best education. He was given the finest clothes. He was treated in the context of his Egyptian culture. And Egypt in those days was the superpower. They were the trend-setting culture of the world of those days. They were like America is now. Everything comes out of Hollywood and New York seems to influence the world. And if you watch programs from other countries, it seems like there are no end to the references to American culture. So think of it this way. Moses may have been born a Hebrew from a third world country that was enslaved by the Egyptians, but he was raised an Egyptian. He wore all the latest trendy clothing. He had all the latest gizmos and gadgets, and he was uh, apt to interpret the world the way he was taught to interpret the world. And so one day Moses finds out that he is a Hebrew child and that he was not actually born an Egyptian. Now the movies that have been made about the story of the Ten Commandments and Moses, they all sort of uh, dance around the issue of, you know, how he grew up and, you know, what he was like. And, and uh, they all sort of dance around the issue of how he came to know that he was a Hebrew and how that changed his life. But I think the most important thing that we can draw from Scripture is, is that he was deeply troubled when he realized that he was not born an Egyptian and that he was actually one of those Hebrew people that had been enslaved by his people. Because the next thing we read is, is that he is outraged by the way an Egyptian is treating an Israel, Israelite person, a Hebrew person, and so he kills the guy, hoping that he had done it secretly. Uh, so he feels guilty, he feels shame because of what he's done, and he hopes to hide what he has done, only to find out a day later when he tries to tell his Hebrew brethren, hey, guys, get along, don't fight with each other, you know, you have more in common, you know, the enemy's Egypt, and they look at him and they call him a meddling murderer. So they know what he did. And they think he's meddling. And at that moment, Moses had to have realized that he no longer feels like part of the family he grew up in, and yet he is also not accepted by the people he was born to. What an amazingly difficult place that was for him. What a difficult challenge that must have been for him. And so he ran away. I'm not sure. I blame him, to tell you the truth. I think he's got to... He's got a crime that he's got to put behind him and, and, you know, I don't want to say that it was okay that he killed somebody, but under the circumstances, his options were pretty limited. And so Moses ran from who he thought he was and who he thought he could never be. And that, the first thing we need to know about where our man after God's own heart 
came from. Then the Bible tells us that while he was in the wilderness, he came across a group of shepherd women who were sisters who were trying to water their flocks only to be tormented by their male counterparts. And so he defended them against the men and helped them water their flocks. And then when the women went home early, they told their father that a Hebrew man was defending them and uh, helped them water their flocks. And the father-in-law says, well, where is he then? <laughs> Why didn't you bring him home so we could reward him for his kindness? The reason that's worth mentioning at this point is, is if we try to wrap our minds around the character of Moses, we try to understand who this Moses is. One of the things you can see here is, is that he's got a conscience. He really is disturbed by his violent, volatile reaction to the injustice he saw being inflicted upon his Israeli brethren. He's deeply troubled by the fact that those Hebrew brethren don't seem to want anything to do with him because they don't know what's in his heart. They only have their assumptions. And then he's deeply troubled by the injustice of the way these shepherd men are treating the shepherd women. And then we notice that he doesn't want anything for helping them. He's quite content to just let them go home without him. Now, could be he thought he'd better try not to meet too many people and keep his identity secret. But eventually what happens is, is he marries one of the daughters with Zipporah and becomes a member of that household and takes up the life of a shepherd in a Bedouin community. And this man, Moses, probably felt that he'd found a place of peace but his heart was always unsettled. It had to be. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because when he hungered for truth and justice, he had to have looked to God without knowing for sure who he was talking to. He was raised in the Egyptian culture. He was raised to recognize all the Egyptian gods, and yet he had this sense about him that there was more than what he'd been taught. He must have thought that if Pharaoh really was a godlike person, then he would have been more just than he was. Moses hungers for truth and justice, and so it doesn't surprise us that he probably spent many times, many hours and days out there in the wilderness with his sheep contemplating these things. Sometimes I'm not sure what the difference between thinking and praying are. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking about things that are matters that only God can have real authority over, then I'm wondering if it isn't prayer. And I do a lot of critical thinking. And so I imagine Moses being like that, a critical thinker. The reason that I'm fairly safe in making this conclusion is because when he saw something that looked like a sign from God, he had to investigate it. He couldn't let it go. He saw what looked like a bush that was on fire, but it wasn't burning, and he had to investigate it. And when he realized when he got there that he was in the presence of God, he didn't walk away from it. He didn't run away from it. He ran toward it, so to speak. He, he took off his shoes and stepped into the presence of God, and he debated, discussed, and negotiated with God. This is a guy who was looking for God. I believe people, men especially, who are really hungry for justice and truth will almost always find it by looking to God. And when God calls them, they're the kind of people who will answer on the first ring. 
And so Moses was this kind of man. He wanted truth, he wanted justice, he wanted to know who really was in charge of all of this created order, and he met him face to face. And then, in an unbelievably strange turn of events, as the conversation went on, he even denied that God was able to do what God said he would do. He started thinking more in terms of God's going to make me do this seriously. Don't you know I don't speak very plainly? And don't you know how those people feel about me? If I go back, I'm dead man. And then he says to God, really, you don't understand. I, I lived there. This is the superpower of the world. This is the the mightiest army in the world. This is the most highly developed technological society of our day. And you think I'm going to go in there with a stick and bring them to their knees? And God says, Moses, you're missing the point. You aren't going to do anything. I'm going to do it. In fact, remember that word I used from uh, back around Easter time? I said Jesus was a propitiation. And that means that he was the vessel or the container in which God imparts God's grace. Well, Moses was a precursor to the propitiation that Jesus was. Moses had to be reminded in that moment, you are no longer who you think you are. You never really were, you know. You weren't born to be an Egyptian. You were born to be a Hebrew. In fact, you were born to be the deliverer. And now I'm telling you, Stop your doubting and understand that I have more than enough power to do this. And what I need from you is the faith to let me do it through you. And so this man, Moses, who was anything but a man after God's own heart in the moment at that bush, was a man who had to decide that God had all the power and all the authority and that he had to let God impart God's purpose through him. And apparently Moses said yes, because the next thing we know, he and his wife Zipporah and their daughter, or son rather, <laughs> Zipporah and their son are making their way across the wilderness back to Egypt. And this strange story that appears for just a couple of verses is, is really a telling story because right before that verse, God says that he is the God of the firstborn of Israel. He's the God of the firstborn of Israel, he says. And then two verses later, we read that on the way back to Egypt, God is so angry with Moses, he wants to kill Moses. And the only thing that saves him is Zipporah's faith. His wife says, what kind of man do I marry here? What kind of man have I married here? God expects something of you, and you ain't doing it. And so she does what Moses wouldn't do. You know what it was? Moses wouldn't circumcise his own son, his firstborn son. And so the Bible tells us God is the God of the firstborn of Israel, and Moses wouldn't circumcise his son. So what is that saying? It's saying that God's angry with Moses because he won't circumcise his son and make him a son of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses would have been circumcised at the time of his birth, eight days after his birth, and we already know that he was a good six months old or so before he went into the home of Pharaoh. 
So what Moses is doing is he's saying, you know what, I just soon he didn't look like one of the Hebrews because if things go south, I don't want him to suffer the consequences of my dumb decision. Come on, Dad, let's get an amen. We've done that. We've said, boy, you know, I can live with the scars and the bumps and the bruises of my own dumb decisions, but whenever it looks like I'm going to make a bad decision that hurts my family, that's a whole different thing. And so Zipporah says, look, you don't get it. God's going to do this, not you. Why can't you get that through this, your head? And Zipporah, in that moment, saved her husband's neck because God was ready to kill him over it. Really remarkable story. And a lot of people don't read it because it's this short little sentence about circumcision that seems a little awkward. Then Moses found his way. So what do we know about Moses? Well, we know that at times he's volatile and temperamental, and he's apt to do something without thinking. And at other times he's easily, uh, I don't want to say frightened, but, but he overthinks things and becomes immobile because he is overthinking matters. And the other thing we notice about Moses is, is he's got a great wife. <laughs> This Zipporah is one of those who should have been in that series about women, except I tried to keep it about women who were ancestors of Jesus. But listen, we could do a nice message about Zipporah because she's a wonderful, brave, and incredible woman. Those country girls, you know, they're pretty awesome. So here we are now, Moses having to be broken and reset. I want to focus on that notion for a moment because the rest of the story of Moses and Pharaoh's interactions is really about the 10 plagues and it's about Pharaoh versus Israel, Pharaoh versus Moses, and we don't have enough time to cover all that. So in a minute, I'm going to jump past the drama of the plagues and jump right into the place where they are now in the wilderness. Excuse me. And... Before we get there, I just want to point out that the most important thing that we're seeing here in Moses is that he had to be broken and reset. My late father he told me a story many years ago from his childhood about how when he was about five years old, he was walking along some uh, trolley tracks, tripped over the trolley track and fell and broke his arm. He lived in New Albany, Indiana. There were streetcars everywhere. And he tripped over the streetcar track and broke his arm. He never said anything to his mother about it, even though it hurt. And one day she started looking at his arm and realizing that it didn't look right. And that he wasn't using it the way he used to. So she took him to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, his arm's been broken at some point. And the doctor broke his arm again so that he could set it right. So my dad had to have his arm when he was a small child rebroken in order to have it reset correctly. And so many of us can relate to that because that's Moses. His life experiences as an Egyptian will play into his remaining years as the leader of the people of Israel. All the knowledge and learning, all of the skills, all of the physical development, mental development, everything he got from being raised in an Egyptian home will come into play. God uses everything on your resume, gentlemen. He certainly used mine. And you guys would laugh if you knew some of the things on my resume. <laughs> 
you wouldn't believe all the stuff I've tried and done and over the years. And you'd think, well, now how in the world does bungee jumping play into the, uh, the, the work of a pastor of a church? Well, you know what? I can tell you that it takes an awful lot of faith sometimes to just let go and fall hundreds of feet, believing that a big rubber band is going to save your life. So everything in your resume counts, gentlemen. Everything. Everything in Moses' resume counted, and the only thing that had to change was God had to break him and reset him. And so this is the way it is with all people who want to live in truth and justice as God has ordained it. And the fact is, God is truth and justice, and his son is that word made flesh. And so if you want to accept Jesus as your king, the first thing you have to do is let him break you and remake you. And every story about Jesus in the Gospels is a story of people being broken and reset. The Apostle Paul, broken, knocked right off of his horse's back in the middle of the road to Damascus, and then knocked out of commission for several months so that he could be remade. Reset. The bone had to be reset because it broke and was healed improperly. What part of your life is brokenness that has to be rebroken and reset in order for you to be what you are meant to be? Moses was not just the information source, the propitiation that God used to teach Pharaoh a lesson. He was also teaching Moses and the people of Israel an important lesson. Through the 10 plagues, Moses was learning too. He was learning that this new God that he had come to know was more powerful than the gods of Egypt by far. And he learned that on the night of the Passover, his firstborn son was saved by the blood of the lamb and Pharaoh's firstborn of all of Pharaoh's everything was killed. Who's the more powerful God, Pharaoh or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Moses is God. And now Moses is having everything he thought he knew completely turned upside down by the demonstration of God's power. He's standing there in faith like a guy about to fall out of a basket or a bridge with a bungee cord on saying, Lord, I believe you've got this. And then he lets go and he free falls until about terminal velocity hits and then the rubber band starts to stretch out and you come to a nice gentle stop and then you get to be weightless for a little while. And this is what it's like every plague for Moses. Every plague. Moses is letting go and experiencing the increasing friction of free fall and then the gentle stop and the weightlessness of seeing the amazing power of God. Absolutely remarkable. So now Moses has begun to have his mind changed and they're in the wilderness now. They've won the victory over Egypt or God has won it. And now they're in the wilderness and they're following this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. And Moses is going, it's all right, folks, trust me, just follow the pillar of fire. Follow the cloud. God's got this. Well, they're more inclined to believe in Moses than they are God because that's all they've ever known is believing in a man who sets himself up as God. Moses is quick-tempered and sometimes he's rash. 
And sometimes he overthinks things and he gets really caught in a, a, a conundrum where he's thinking and thinking and thinking and doing nothing. And in one of those cases, he goes to his father-in-law and his father-in-law says, yeah, Mo, I've noticed that about you. Here's what you do. Take charge of these circumstances, do these things. And, and so Moses is a man who at least had the wisdom to recognize his weaknesses and to look for help provided by God ultimately against those weaknesses. But the other thing he is, unfortunately, is a guy who never quite gets his temper under control. Because at some point, even though this man has been completely made over and has become God's friend, Scripture calls him God's friend, even though he's been made over into God's friend, he still has this temper problem. And on one occasion at Meribah, he prays to God because the people are bellyaching about fresh water to drink again. He already knows what God's going to do, but he goes to God to pray anyway because he's learned through experience that when this kind of thing happens, you go to God and you pray. So he did. And then when he came back, the people were still griping. They're still throwing their fits and acting like they've never seen God work before. And Moses loses his temper, and he says, you know how this goes. I strike the rock, water comes. Bam! And he strikes the rock with his stick, and the water comes. And in that moment, he realized that he'd done something rash and stupid because God then says to him, you know, you did that. And the thing you had to learn from that burning bush moment all the way up to now was is that I would do it all and you'd be the vessel, but you just took that one on yourself. You just said, I'm going to make the water come out of the rock, and then you did it. You temper, Moses. You're just not the right guy to lead them into the promised land because of this temper of yours. Think forward to another character we're going to meet and realize that this is not a uncommon situation with God. Sometimes he says, you know, I like the people that get things done and who are moldable and shapeable, but by the time they're ready to enter into the promise, they're so broken themselves that they're not quite ready for the promise. So the lesson in that for all of us, gentlemen, is that we have to be willing to be remade by God and we've got to get a handle on the bad habits that could stand between us and seeing the fullest version of God's promise. But here's the good news. Even though Moses failed God in that moment and God said, well, you're not going into the promised land. He was God's friend. The Bible tells us that when he went on to uh, the mountaintop, to Mount Nebo, and looked out across to the promised land, his eyes were clear. It's a way of saying that there's nothing wrong with his physical health, but God just said, you're done. And it goes on to say that even the angels buried Moses up there, that God was such a, had such a close relationship with Moses that he personally cared for Moses. And then the Bible tells us this weird story in Jude about how the Satan, Satan tried to do, dig up Moses and the, the archangel Michael actually fought, it, fought him off. And all this to say that just because Moses never quite got his temper under control and that temper led to a moment of pride that would make him the wrong person to lead them into the promised land. In other words, God wasn't punishing Moses for his pride. That was forgiven. God wasn't punishing him. God was saying, unfortunately, 
we need a different kind of leadership in the promised land than the kind of leadership we got out here in the wilderness. And you just proved that point. And so Joshua became the leader. What kind of person are you and where have you come from? Because God's ready to use that person right now to accomplish everything God has in mind for not only you, but for the people that you influence. And what can you do to give glory to God as you let him remake you? Remember the broken bone that had to be broken again in order to reset it correctly because there's probably something about you that needs rebreaking so it can be set right. But if you want to be God's man, Moses is a pretty good example. I look to Moses a lot. And it's because of you myself as a radically flawed leader who only gets it right when he gets out of the way and God takes over. And speaking of that, I have one last word for you, friends. Shiloh has been given an amazing opportunity. Really, all the churches, all the people of this land. But let's talk about Shiloh for a moment. We were a church in Egypt, so to speak, when many things went wrong in the life of Shiloh. They were mostly the result of a whole lot of being too much like the world instead of being more disciple-oriented, more discipleship-oriented. It's a natural thing that happens in the life of the church, and it has to be governed and regulated in a way that keeps the main thing the main thing. And as soon as it starts feeling like we're supposed to be doing programs and, and uh, social things and all that, it, what I want to point out to you is, is that God has given us an opportunity because he shut it down. He shut it down so that it could be broken and reset. Shiloh has been broken and reset. And now on the 14th, when we start moving back towards life with each other present here, let us all agree that we don't want to go back to where we were. We want to go to wherever God is taking us next. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts so that you can be glorified through us, your willing servants who want to love you and obey you and serve your Lord, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to be those people dead to ourselves, dead to our pride, dead to our temperament, and alive to your spirit so that as one body we can be disciples seek disciples and thus make our community better because we are servants of Christ in their midst. We give you all the glory and praise, Lord, for whatever good we do. Amen.